Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Hey there, and welcome to this Thanksgiving week episode of Bloomberg Government's Suspending the Rules. Congress is taking the week off for the holiday, and we figured we'd take the opportunity to preview some of the big ticket items coming down the pike during this year's lame duck session. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. The biggest item left on the to-do list for the 115th Congress is completing the appropriations process for fiscal 2019, which you can hear more about in some of our recent episodes and will continue to track as the negotiations unfold. This week, we're talking about a couple other things Congress could spend time on before the end of the year. Later in the show, we'll talk about a Coast Guard reauthorization measure passed by the Senate last week. First, though, criminal justice. Last week, President Trump endorsed a Senate package that tackles both ends of the criminal justice system, easing mandatory minimum sentencing rules, as well as changes designed to help inmates prepare for their release and succeed once they return to society. Here to talk about that proposal are Bloomberg government legislative analyst Noreen Chowdhury. Hi. And Michael Smallberg. Hello. Let's start with the so-called front-end changes. What would this bill do on sentencing? So if this bill were to pass Congress, it would represent the first revision to U.S. criminal justice laws we've seen since the Reagan and Clinton administrations. When we talk about front-end criminal justice reforms, we're referring to changes in sentencing laws. First, this bill specifically targets mandatory minimum sentences. So for offenders with the previous conviction, sentences would be reduced to 15 years from 20. And it would also change what's known as a three strikes penalty. So for repeat offenders or individuals previously convicted for two or more felonies, sentences would be shortened to 25 years from life in prison. So under existing law even, there are safety valves built into those mandatory minimum sentences, allowing for shorter sentences when certain conditions are met. This bill expands on that, right? Right. So under existing law, courts can impose a shorter sentence than required by a mandatory minimum or what's known as a safety valve. This kicks in, for example, example, if a defendant qualifies based on certain criteria under sentencing guidelines, such as not possessing or using a firearm, or if a defendant provides substantial assistance to the prosecution of another person. So this bill would give courts that discretion by creating a new safety valve to impose reduced sentences based on criminal history points that are assigned by sentencing guidelines. In this case, a defendant would need to have four or fewer points, but those with three-point offenses or two-point violent offenses wouldn't be eligible. So an earlier version of the the Senate bill would have allowed the sentencing changes to be applied retroactively, essentially shortening the sentences for a lot of current inmates. But this legislation doesn't. Why is that? The only retroactive application we see in this bill is for crack and powder cocaine-related offenses. And even then, there are limitations. For example, if a motion to reduce a sentence is denied after review, courts wouldn't then consider modifying a sentence. This really goes back to Senate Republicans such as John Kennedy of Louisiana and Tom Cotton of Arkansas that claim sentencing changes would put violent criminals back on the street. So it seems that Senate GOP opposition over how sentencing should be tackled could very well be the obstacle to passing a criminal justice package before the end of the year. 
On the back end, the bill would require the Justice Department and Bureau of Prisons to implement what they call a recidivism reduction system to essentially prepare inmates for their release and reintegration into society. How's that going to work? So the idea here is that the Justice Department would come up with a system looking at the risk of prisoners committing crimes again after they leave, and they would assign one of four risk levels to federal prisoners. And that system would end up determining where prisoners are housed, so you might separate low and high risk prisoners within a correctional facility. And it would also affect how they qualify to be released early to home confinement or to a halfway home. So lower risk prisoners who complete certain anti-recidivism programs like uh, substance abuse treatment courses or vocational training, prison jobs could actually get time credits and spend some of their remaining sentence under home confinement. There was some opposition to that proposal from the NAACP. What were some of their concerns? Yeah, so this is one of the more controversial parts of this bill, in addition to the sentencing changes that Noreen talked about. The concern here is that this builds on some of the current practices courts have where they come up with sort of formulas or algorithms to determine sentences. And in this case, the ACLU and NAACP and other groups have previously been concerned that this system would end up actually perpetuating a lot of the disparities. So for example, the system might determine that um, black prisoners are more likely to commit crimes again after they leave prison. So what are the chances this thing actually happens and gets passed during the lame duck? So it seemed like the stars were all aligned last week for this bill. A lot of the sponsors came out with a new compromise. This got endorsement from the Fraternal Order of Police, the National Union of Police Officers, which was a key endorsement because this group had opposed previous versions of this bill. And President Trump came out and said he supported it and would sign this measure. So it seemed like there was a good chance this could come up for a vote in the lame duck. Towards the end of last week, though, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, tampered those expectations and said there might not actually be enough time. It seems like this won't be attached to a year-end spending package, and it may not even come up for a standalone floor vote. Just this weekend on the Sunday talk shows, some senators were saying they thought this bill could still get 65, 70, even 80 votes. And there's a chance President Trump could pressure the Senate to take this measure up. But if not this Congress, this definitely is an issue uh, to watch in the next Congress. Although some supporters are really pushing for this to move through now because they're concerned that in the next Congress, with Democrats controlling the House, they could push for more aggressive sentencing reforms, which could end up losing the support of the Fraternal Order of Police and some of the other Republicans who were on board with this compromise. Thanks, Noreen and Michael. BGov subscribers, be sure to look for their coverage on Bloomberg government, including an on-point presentation with some fantastic background on the current state of the criminal justice system. We will be right back with a look at the Coast Guard reauthorization bill, which I promise is more exciting than it might sound. Last week, the Senate passed a bill reauthorizing the United States Coast Guard for two years and authorizing it to purchase icebreaker ship it said are badly needed. It would also make other changes affecting environmental enforcement and authorizing funding for other programs. Joining us now to dive into it are Bloomberg government defense policy reporter Roxana Turon. Good to be with you. And BGov legislative analyst Sarah Babbage. Hello. Welcome back to both of you. Before we really set sail on this, can you talk a little bit about why the Coast Guard is, is actually a pretty big deal? Just a few things that I would throw out that it talks that it 
it works on, it does a lot to facilitate trade by ship. And uh, 90% of the trade in the world happens by like, cargo ships. It's super important that they have their waterways cleared of ice, lighthouses that are working to direct boats. So they're involved in that. They do environmental protection and enforce fishing laws. And they're involved in law enforcement. And then, of course, they have a whole other side on defense. Exactly. I like to call them the little service that could. Um, I don't think many people realize that the Coast Guard has a little more than 50,000 people. They're part of the Department of Homeland Security, so they're not necessarily part of the Pentagon, even though they're a military service. You see them everywhere from the waterways, um, and anytime there is a hurricane, they step in. You see news about the um, huge drug busts uh, everywhere from you know the Pacific, Atlantic, and they also deploy everywhere. They're in the Middle East, right now. They're in the Northern Arabian Gulf. I actually had the privilege to uh, attend one of their exercises a while ago in 2005. They're in the Pacific, in the South Pacific area. So the Coast Guard is really everywhere. And it's amazing how they make do with so few uh, resources. And in fact, the Arctic region is theirs as well. And, And a lot rests on their ability to be there. Sarah, one thing you had flagged before the show is the the Coast Guard's drug enforcement activities. Right. They they intercepted drugs with a street value of more than six and a half billion dollars just in 2017. Right. So that was just cocaine. I don't know if they intercepted <laughs> other types of drugs, but um, cocaine with a street value of six point six billion dollars or more. They're really doing just a diverse amount of work. Roxana, you're the only person in the room who's actually been on a Coast Guard vessel. Yes, that's true, even though um, I would love to be on an icebreaker. But yes, I, I've been on a, on a Coast Guard uh, cutter. They really um, do everything from uh, patrolling the waterways, from rescuing people. You can imagine like the worst storm that you could possibly imagine. The Coast Guard is there to rescue people every time that happens. The Coast Guard also, I brought up the icebreaker because that is pretty much one of the Coast Guard's main mission is to be in the Arctic. But the Coast Guard right now has only one heavy icebreaker and it's really old and it's about to break down and so they're trying to buy a new one they've tried for many many years but only a couple years ago did they did they succeed in actually getting the authorization and the funding for the icebreaker so getting back to the bill that would reauthorize the coast guard is that addressed in the legislation so the icebreaker that Roxanne is talking about in the arctic is called the polar star and it was commissioned in the 1970s and it's really near the end of its life from what we hear. And this bill would instruct the Coast Guard to do an enhanced maintenance project on it so that it could remain in service through 2025. But this this bill isn't appropriating money for the Coast Guard. So um, whether it actually gets money for new icebreakers or, or the other vessels that it says it needs for its fleet, that depends on the appropriations process, which is still ongoing for the Homeland Security Department. And in fact, the, um, the fate of the new icebreaker and also the other the other uh, vessels that the Coast Guard needs is a little bit in limbo right now. Well, the House decided to basically cut all the $780 million that the Coast Guard requested for their icebreaker in order to basically save some money for, for the border wall. The Senate in their appropriations bill actually has all the money. So the Coast Guard leadership is hoping that the two chambers will come together and, and ultimately find a compromise and, and fund the icebreaker because they're trying to award a contract actually very 
very early uh, in 2019. So it all come down to these year-end spending negotiations, like so many other things we've been talking about on the podcast. On this authorization bill, the Senate in particular has been working on a compromise for a while now. Sarah, what was the big sticking point in this and how did they get past it? I've been working on Coast Guard authorizing legislation for most of the 115th Congress. Mm -hmm. And one of the big sticking points was over the regulation of ballast water and incidental discharge off of vessels. So, And for those at home. Yes. <laughs> ballast water is something that uh, ships take on to stabilize. So um, if you think of the really big boats that are carrying cargo, if they let off their cargo somewhere, they're going to be not as steady. And so they take on water to stabilize and then they will let it out somewhere else. And that process has brought invasive species into America's waters and disrupted ecosystems. Regulation of ballast water and other incidental discharges off of boats is kind of a patchwork now is what lawmakers were saying. The authority is split between the EPA, the Coast Guard, and then some states have their own laws as well. So what the uh, legislation was trying to do was set a chain of command for who is going to regulate and who else can do additional regulation and who's going to enforce the laws. And they got to where they needed to, obviously, because they they got it past the Senate. They did. So in the Senate bill, the EPA is going to take the lead on setting the regulations and the Coast Guard and the states will have a process to weigh in on those. And then the Coast Guard will be the lead on enforcement. And some states can set their own additional no discharge zones. And the Great Lakes states can set extra standards for their waters as well. What else is in this bill? I know there's um, some provisions that could affect recreational boaters too. Is that right? Right. There's bill really runs the gamut and just shows all the things that the Coast Guard is involved in. There's like safety provisions for recreational vessels. There is something requiring a backup system for GPS. All of the satellites that could be disrupted from the GPS, which would really wreak havoc, um, both in terms of military readiness and like using Google Maps. The bill would direct the Coast Guard to establish a canine currency detection program on top of all of the other things that it's doing in terms of law enforcement. And then there's some really interesting like exceptions to existing laws around vessels for specific vessels. So there's this one boat called the Delta Queen. It's a steamboat on the Mississippi River and it was built in the 1920s and it's made of wood. And in 1966, Congress passed laws requiring more flame retardant materials. And Congress has been trying for years now to try to get an exception for this one boat that some members of Congress say is a so-called fire trap, but it would also, I guess, have a lot of cultural value and other members of Congress say it would create jobs. Thank you, Sarah and Roxana. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week when Congress will be back in town. Till then, from all of us at Bloomberg Government, have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.